You can be seated. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to find the book of Malachi, right before the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so we're starting a, a new series this week, and this is going to be a little bit different in some ways um, because uh, the, the nature of what we're going to do is we're going to be t unpacking the book of Malachi, but in that we're going to hit some topics that we're going to move, like give some support on top of the foundations that are there in Malachi, and I'll, I'll be going kind of over that today. This morning, what I really want to do is give a little bit of a brief overview. Um, as I was praying about this a couple weeks ago, I, I started thinking, you know, when typically when we do a series on a book, it, it's maybe a little brief introduction and then it's right into a message. And I thought, you know, that's not what we're doing in our How to Read or Study the Bible well. I thought maybe I can model what we ought to do in an uh, approach to reading uh, a book of the Bible and studying through that. So I want to give kind of an overview this morning that's a little bit more detailed. We're not going to take time to read the entire book here, um, though I would encourage you over this next week to maybe take time uh, to do that yourself. And it's, it's only a few chapters, so it's not going to take you hours and hours to do that like it might take to go through a, a book like Genesis or especially book of prophecy like Isaiah or Acts or something that's, that's much more lengthy in, in the work. So it, it should be very digestible in that sense. Um, and I, this, this morning, what my, like my main goal really is, is this, is, is just to help us together as a church understand why Malachi would be a book worth our time and study uh, and, and focus on, other than it being a book of the, the scriptures, right? That, that obviously is included in the scripture, and that makes it worthy in and of itself. Um, so let me give you a little bit of background. And before I do, where did Mason go? Did he go grab some water or something? Okay. Braden, too? Okay. Um, I need to get with Braden and Michael. I mean, Braden and Michael. I was looking at Michael a second ago. Michael, would you get them and tell them? But somebody help me remember before the service is well, I'm done. I need to meet with them afterwards. I misspoke this morning. I need to correct something with them. That's all it is. It's not anything. They're not in trouble. So I'm the one in trouble. Um, Y'all, like, we know that all the time, Matt, right? Okay, so let's begin. Who is Malachi? So this is a, an interesting question as we come to this uh, Old Testament prophecy, and, and this is actually kind of a, a struggle for us to identify several other uh, people in Scripture that have written prof prophetic books. We don't get a lot of background to who they are, and so scholars will tend to uh, look at at who they are, and they'll try to come up with ideas, and they'll say, oh, this is a pseudonym for somebody else. Maybe it's Isaiah, or maybe it's Ezra, or something like that. I, I, and I think when you t look at the scholars that are conservative, they tend to take all those ideas and go, why don't we just trust what God's Word says, and it's, this is a, a person, and that's where I land. I just think that we don't know a lot about Malachi, but he's a, a real guy that existed at this point in, in history, and he wrote this. It's not a pseudonym for anybody else. We just don't happen to know a lot of details about him. And the truth is, we don't have to. 
okay? It, it's, it's enough to know that he was a man who lived in this era and uh, wrote this. So when, we need to then ask, when was the prophecy of Malachi written? I think this does become very important. And, and as well, when you think about when was written, that also bears forth uh, a little bit of information about why it was written too. Because we start looking um, at the uh, historical context. So all of you who are here on Wednesday nights, what am I referring to when I, ref- uh, I mention the idea of the historical context? We're t- you're getting quizzed right now. Say it really loud, Kevin. Yeah, the hermeneutical triad, right? So you have the historical context, you have the theological implications, and then you have the genre. So obviously we're looking at the genre, which is prophecy. The theological implications are, are contents. We're going to look at some of those things this morning. And then the historical context plays a big role in this because we need to understand what's happening in the life of Israel as they're uh, developing uh, in, at this point in history. So... Uh, what is happening, and this is, we're going to look at this real quickly. If you remember any of your biblical history, you'll remember that when Nebuchadnezzar came in as part of the Babylonian Empire, he took captives out of Judah, and specifically in Jerusalem and, and other areas, and he took them back to Babylon, and one of the things that he did was to destroy the temple, and that was probably around 587 B.C., okay? So, uh, the temple then had to be rebuilt at some point. What two books give us information about the temple being restored? Can anyone recall? Ezra and Nehemiah, excellent. So those two books, uh, Nehemiah is specifically uh, talks about how he came back and was rebuilding the, the walls of Jerusalem. Great, one of my favorite books about Christian leadership and the principles there for how leadership works together. And then Ezra, there's, there's some that hold those two books are actually one, but either way, Ezra is the priestly perspective on the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the worship of the true and living God, Yahweh. And so this... Actually, the book of Malachi occurs just a little bit after those because what we know is that the temple worship had been restored. And so we see that happening. So most people believe that the the restoration of the temple occurred around 515 B.C. So you're thinking some 60 to 70 years uh, odd later, after the destruction, the temple uh, has been re- uh, restored and worship has begun. But here's what's interesting. We need to look at this because look at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. And I want to give you just some instances where we see that, this, that the uh, worship has been restored. Actually, let's start in verse 7. 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have cursed many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Whoa. Do you you hear what's happening there? The worship has been restored, but the priests are doing what? They've basically abandoned the right habits of worship. They're, they're improperly sacrificing to the Lord. And the Lord is angered by their lack of obedience to him. Look at verse 13 now. And said, so this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. Now, this is referring to the people. This isn't about the priest. 
Okay, But it says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So the priest and the people alike were worshiping wrongly. And it's this indictment, but all of that lets us know that the temple had been restored and that worship was being done wrongly, okay? So that would be an, another, like, so the when is certainly that five, after that 515 when the temple's restored, but the why of this is certainly also to correct the things that were going wrong in the relationship of the people with the Lord, how he is a covenant-keeping God, and, and they desire, and he desires our, the people's obedience, but they're continuing to show disobedience and disregard for his ways. And so we'll get into a lot of specifics with that. So let me give you this, because I think, to, so you're seeing who, the, the when and the why, beginning to see that, and we're going to explore lots more of the whys, but, but here's the, an important piece. How do you read the book of Malachi? Now, I'm not talking about just reading the words on the page. Some of you will be smart, Alex, and say, well, you just read the words on the page. No, I'm, I'm talking about what kind of devices are present in this book that help us to understand what's happening. And I think one of those is this, uh, uh, what I would say is a, a type of literary device called disputation. D-I-S-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N, disputation. And what that is, we see it as early as verse 2. And the idea of the disputation is that something's said, and then there's a counterstatement, and then there's kind of this correction that follows behind it. So let's look at verse 2. Here's this statement. The Lord says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, so, so there's, here's the dispute, okay? But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? So you so hear the back and forth right here. Okay, so they say, how have you loved us? And he says, it's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So there's this question of the statement of the Lord that I've loved you. They say, well, how have you loved us? And he answers, okay? That's not the only place he does this. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, have we despised your name? And then the Lord replies, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So, so you hear these disputations back and forth. Let's look at one more. Turn over to chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, and we'll, we'll read verse 6 too, just to get a smidge more context. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And I want you to stop reading for just a moment. Do you hear the, the hope of the Lord? That, there, that there's this longing that he loves the people, that he wants them to respond as a, a son to a father, is what we read earlier in verse 6. And here he's saying, I long for you to obey. I, I want you to turn to me. And then they say in verse 7, the end of this, but you say, how shall we return? Well, and, he, and here in verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
And he answers in your tithes and contributions, a famous passage that we hear. So you, so you hear these disputations. So these things occur. There's likely six or so in this entire book that, kind of, that give us these points to relate to what the Lord is drawing the people to, how he's calling them to repentance, to return to him. He's explaining his heart for the people. So they're key literary devices by which we, I think, see them both exposed and in the Lord's heart for them. Is that, is that helpful? Because I think a lot of times I would go through there and go, I, I don't get all these, these rhetorical questions and the answers, but they're key, and, and we need to pause and look at those things in that way. Um, so what are some of the key issues? And this is where I think I get like jazzed the most about these things. So w- what are some of the key issues in this? So let's go back and look at verse 1. This is interesting, and this is going to be the focus of the week, the message next week. So I, I don't want to unravel everything, but I'm going to give you a, a little hint here. So it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, what's interesting is the word oracle there, if you think about it, what is, what is an oracle typically? What is the meaning of the idea of an oracle? Say it really loud. A prophetic word, yeah, spoken typically by someone for deity, right? So, so it's not necessarily the, the deity or divine one speaking it, but it's on kind of that behalf, okay? So, so what's interesting, it's, it's a message. So now let's read it again with that kind of meaning in, in mind. The message of the word of the Lord, a spoken word of the word of the Lord by Israel. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? Does that make sense what I'm getting at? It, it, the, the translation for oracle, or the, the Hebrew word meaning leaving it at oracle, is, it leaves it a little redundant. The, the word actually in Hebrew means burden, that which is to be carried. Now, I share that because next week we're going to look at what it means to have the, for the word of the Lord to be a burden. And, and that's going to be, honestly, largely directed at myself, Michael, those of us who are teachers in the church, as we have the responsibility to carry the burden of the Lord's word well. So I'm going to unpack that. So now think about the importance of what Malachi is saying here. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So, so this is a weighty matter that he's about to unpack and share for the people. It's, it bears a different weight and cert- brings a different circumstance and helps us understand the better interpretation of the entire prophecy. So we're going to unpack that more next week. Looking forward to it, okay? Now, look at verse 2. This is interesting, too. I have loved you, and I've already read this, but I want to read it again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What? That passage or that phraseology, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, where does that come from? Say it really loud. Can't hear over the air conditioning. Genesis. You're saying, I'm hearing Jesus. It's from Genesis. It's from Genesis, right? Okay. Where else does this passage or is this passage reflected later? Romans chapter 9. Isn't that interesting? That here, Genesis is tied in with Malachi, which is also tied in with Romans. Now, 
I'm not going to get into all of these details, but remember, Malachi is actually the last prophetic book of the Old Testament. And then what happens? There's silence for some 400 years. That's key. So, so when we think about what Malachi is connecting here and almost pro- propelling forward, it is this idea of the covenant love of God. Now, we also know when, when we do more systematic theology, which is outside the bounds, hey, Michael, could you do me a favor? Could you cut the air off? It's just gotten distracting for me all morning. Am I, am I the only one that's weak-minded like that? And, okay, praise the Lord. Jesse, you're saying I'm the only one weak-minded? You're agreeing? You're, you're not weak-minded. <laughs> okay. I, I know better than that. Women can multitask so much better than guys. So, kill a thing, Michael. Kill it. <laughs> kill it dead. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. Both, both uh, like, figuratively and literally as that belt is just squealing. Um, so, the covenant love of God. I'm, I can't believe I got back there, Mason. <laughs> um, the covenant love of God is essential now, here's what's also interesting in this, and, and it's, it, it definitely brings in some tough theology, but I think this is a point for us to get to this and unpack this strategically, and that is the, the matter of election. When we think about the issue of Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated, that is a, a, a key passage both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament that uh, emphasizes the work of God's electing power. So one of the things that we're going to do uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to take that, this concept and we're going to take the foundation of that idea of Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, and we're going to build some structural truths out of the Scripture on how what election does for us and how it works. So in this sense, we're taking the foundation out of Malachi, but breathing into just a little bit more some systematic things. Okay. Now, I say this because here, there, there's an important truth about interpreting Scripture and theology. With, with, there's two, basically, um, types of approaches to theology. The first is systematic, and I, I'm not putting these in order uh, necessarily as priority. I think that the systematic approach is what most of us are familiar with today. What we do is we kind of look and go, okay, what does the Bible say about, uh, let, let's say, God's love? Okay, the theology around God's love. And we'll go to concordance. Maybe if you're really nerdy, you go to uh, Strong's or Young's concordance. And you look up the times that, that the word love occurs, and you begin to look at that throughout all of the scriptures. That would be systematizing it across all the books. The other type of theology is biblical theology. So biblical theology takes the one book of scripture, and it says, what does it teach in this Then, after doing the biblical theology, how does that tie to the rest of Scripture? So we're going to be kind of mixing those two disciplines as we go through that. Is that helpful? Okay, so we're not excluding one for the other. We're trying to say, hey, we're handling both of these things well. And so when we come to a book like Malachi that addresses this, we certainly want to understand what, why he's doing it within the book. And then we also understand how it applies throughout the rest of Scripture and what does the rest of Scripture say about that. So uh, we're going to encounter that as well um, with the person of John the Baptist as we look at that in Malachi because we're, we're gonna, I'll get there in a little bit more specifically. We could do that with the the day of the Lord that Malachi talks about. All those things are certainly um, contained within the book itself, 
but they also apply to other issues that are addressed in other books um, as well. So that makes it fun stuff, okay? I'm, I'm thinking about Wednesday night. Y'all have any questions so far? <laughs> okay. Um, oh, another topic that we just cannot, uh, or we cannot escape from this book is the idea of covenants. So throughout this book, I think I counted some six times, um, five times that the covenant, the word covenant is used in chapters two and three, which also says to me that becomes central. It's almost as if the, the ideas are introduced and then in chapters two and three, that becomes a, a central focus of those chapters before he finishes, Malachi finishes the prophecy in chapter four. So for us to explore the meaning of covenant and the types of covenants that there were in the Old Testament, how the Lord responds uh, to his people in covenant relationship and what the expectations are of the people to respond to the Lord in those covenant relationships is essential because Malachi is, is certainly uh, addressing those things. Um, we read this already in chapter two, uh, dealing with the people and their worship, and bringing tears to the altar. That sounds like it should be a good thing, but the Lord indicts them for that, and there's a reason that he indicts it. Let's go back and look at chapter 2, because we read verses 13 and following, but let's go ahead and read verse uh, 11, and then we'll we'll continue, uh, skip over to verse 14. So in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. That's a strong statement by the Lord in that indictment. And here's what's happened. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the Lord is pointing out to the people that they've been dismissed his commands about intermarrying with other religions. So they've compromised themselves, which you see the context when they've compromised themselves by not being pure in their marriage to Israelites, their worship is then compromised as well. Look at verse 14. It says, but you say, why does he not? And well, actually, let's go back. Um, favor, the idea is that he favor, does not favor them. And then let's, let's go on. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to, hu- to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what, has, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless, faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So not only were the Israelites guilty of marrying foreigners, they were also guilty of divorce for wrong reasons. And so we're going to talk about the sanctity of, of marriage and the importance of relationships and, and how to do those relationships well, especially when we're looking at the, the uh, relationship of marriage. And so students, I, I want to encourage you, this, the, that would be a message that you definitely want to listen to and tune into and understand what the Lord's heart is about these things. Because I can guarantee you, Sherilyn, you probably have dealt with a few clients that have been unequally yoked and the difficulties uh, of those marriages are weighty. And, and there's a responsibility even when you have a marriage where there's an unequal yoking. And we'll talk about what all that entails because it's the first response is not just to be divorced. 
<laughs> just because you, someone comes to Christ or is a believer and they recognize their spouse isn't, that does not say, oh, I get to divorce them. So we're going to unpack all those kind of things because not only is it biblical theology, it will also be systematic theology. And we need to understand the Lord's heart on these matters. So it's a, a great place for us to do that. Um, also, we will see uh, later, and this is, occurs a little bit more in chapter 3 at the beginning, um, we're going to see that, as I mentioned, John the Baptist is going to be prophesied here, in, about here in Malachi. And that's an important thing because we are already mentioned that we have 400 years of silence. The silence is broken by the coming of John the Baptist who announces Jesus the Messiah. And so there's also the, the unfolding of more specifics about Jesus' role as the mediator in this and the need for the people to find salvation and redemption through Christ. So that is another piece that is offered. Um, one thing, look at, at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. This is a, a wonderful passage. There's a few of these passages that deal with God's nature and character. It says, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So, so we're going to talk about this great doctrine of the person and being of God, his immutability. Because if we understand who God is and his nature uh, according to the fact that he does not change, it impacts a whole lot of things about how we understand God to work in and through other pieces. So it's interesting, we'll also look at how election works in relationship to God's immutability because those two doctrines have to be dovetailed together because we're talking about God's nature and being when we look at immutability. So having fun yet? Lots of stuff here, isn't it? So I want to read a passage or a, a statement because I think this is, is such a good one. Um, this is from Spurgeon, and, and he, on, on this passage in Malachi 3.6, he says this, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. Boom. <laughs> we could just drop the mic right there, okay? The proper study of the Godhead, uh, the proper study of, of a Christian is the Godhead, Okay? Now listen to what he says, and, and let me set this a little bit um, too. Remember, um, is anybody a, a nerdy historian? <laughs> wow. When, when the boys point, <laughs> it's like Gina doesn't have to raise her hand. Mark, you are? Okay, good. Um, so I, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of history real, real briefly. The Enlightenment is a, an important piece in world history. The Enlightenment really began kind of in the mid-1600s and, and carried through to the, uh, basically the late 17, 18, early 1800s, okay? And with the Enlightenment came the elevation of science, the, the way that we could measure and prove things. Now, there's been some extra reading I'm doing towards my dissertation, and I, I, I came across this guy who wrote a book in, I want to say it was the 1920s, who was looking at some of the issues around the Enlightenment, and he made this great statement here, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing and butchering it, but here's the idea, that from the Enlightenment, man began to or, or think that we could approach everything in life and handle the problem, and we could get our minds wrapped around issues as if they're problem and we could provide the answer scientifically. That's huge. Let me say this. I think that's still impacting us today. If you look at 
any generation that, that's following that, we think that we can handle the problems. We think we can go to Google and get an answer to the problem. We, we don't like to live, and what I would say in these terms, is with tension. And tension focuses on this, that there are still a lot of things about the Lord and the things of the Lord that are mysterious. Why is that? Biblical truth, simple biblical truth. We see through a veil dimly. <laughs> we will not answer everything. And so here's the problem, and this is what I think Spurgeon is getting at, post really close post-enlightenment. Listen to what he says. I'm going to say this again. The proper study of, of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. Now, he uses the term science there, but I don't think he uses it in the way that is problem-solving as much as in saying, this is what people are doing now. Everything, every discipline that we can apply goes to the importance of knowing God. And I think that's where we need to be as people. So when we come to Malachi 3.6 and we consider this concept of his, the, the mutability of God, we need to pause. We need to understand what and who he is by his nature and how that doctrine of his being impacts so many other things. Um, what's interesting also is this doctrine, if you think about it, uh, of who God is, and He is unchangeable. Listen to, listen to what it says again in verse 3, 6, chapter 3, 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And there's a therefore. There's a purpose behind the revelation of that fact that He does not change. O children of Jacob are not consumed. So, so the people are not consumed because God is, is not changing. That, that's a huge relational dynamic that's pointed out there. And what is the hope? The, the Lord is desiring for the people to turn to Him in repentance. See, so repentance is based upon the person of God and how He operates according to His nature. It's just this huge thing that we're going to get to unpack. Is that fun? Sounds exciting? I hope so. Danny's giving me a thumbs up. Thanks, man. Um, so, also, what's interesting is this indictment about the people robbing God. And, and we're going to look at that passage and what it means to focus in properly on how we are responsible to give God tithes and offerings. What does that look like? What does that really mean? Not that this is a mandated law that has to be uphold, upheld, uh, but how is it principally applied for us today? because there's a lot of controversy about this passage. We're not going to come in and use this definitively because I think there's some aspects that it is not prescriptive, but it, all, it is more so descriptive for us in our giving. How does that work? So we'll get through that, an important place for us to uh, address. Now, look at the end of chapter 3. This is, this is interesting as well. Um, because chapter 3, let's, let's pick up in... Verse 14. I think this will be a good place. You have said it is vain to serve God. Listen to that uh, statement. People are literally saying it's vain to serve God. Continues. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
People just grown hard-hearted. They've grown callous to, to what it meant to walk in relationship with the Lord and to honor Him. And then listen, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You hear the tension that the people are, they're like saying, the Lord really doesn't help us in any way. What's the point in doing these things? And the Lord then, look at verse 16, then those who feared the Lord. So there's this transition. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So, so what I'm getting at is though there was certainly a group that murmured against the Lord, there was also a group that was responsive. What distinguishes those two groups other than obedience? How, how do we discover the blessings of the Lord in spite of those around us who are, in a sense, thumbing their nose at God? We, we need to understand that, that the Lord is revealing the hope of the gospel message here and calling his people to repentance, to humility, to worship him rightly. And then lastly, there are, in chapter 4, admonitions. There are these encouragements uh, to the people of God. They are instructed to fear him with a promise, and, and listen to this, with a promise of restoration. I don't know about you, but sin can often just creep in. That, that if I'm not guarding myself well against temptation, all of a sudden I find my heart and my mind falling prey to sin. And I need the hope of restoration. I need hope. I need joy. I need strength. These are the qualities that, that Malachi begins to unpack and say, these are the things that can be yours should you return to the Lord. So, uh, and, and I mentioned this also um, in chapter 4, we have this promise of the day of the Lord, um, which that, that is a um, apocalyptic in kind of, in time kind of thing that we need to understand. That may be a new concept for some of you, but we, we certainly want to make sure that that's covered. So, um, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of going through Malachi? I've got six reasons here that I want to give you to, to go kind of capstone this message this morning. So first of all, we're going to focus on some important uh, core doctrines whether that be the immutability, the person of God, covenant, all the, there, there's those things and more, the love of God, all those things are going to be core doctrines upon which we camp, okay, because they're in Malachi. Second, we earn, I mean, we learn the importance of upholding the proper aspects of spiritual worship and holding leaders accountable. So, so when you think about the dynamics that were occurring in the wrong worship in the temple, that the temple had been restored. At that point, less than a century, okay, the people had already compromised healthy biblical worship. And it was not just the people, it was also the priest. And I think there's a twofold dynamic there. As leaders go, so shall the people. And if the people don't hold leaders accountable, then the people are going to be compromised too. And so there's this reciprocal relationship that we need to explore there. How do we maintain worship? How do we hold one another accountable to worshiping rightly so that the Lord is honored? Third, there are also moral issues that are addressed in the book. Summarize it just with sin, okay? But there's more to it than that because obviously there's the, the issues with the marriage to the uh, foreign uh, people of foreign gods and then it's also divorce. Compromise is made again and again. 
we need to have mirrors held up to us that we would not be content about sin all the time, all the time. You say, oh, no, I'm, I'm getting sanctified. I'm walking more and more faithfully with the Lord. Yeah, how much more so would we be if we were confronted by sin on an ongoing basis? Because I don't know about you, but my tendency is to minimize my sin issues. I, I tend to go, oh, I'm doing so good in these areas. And, and then I dis, dismiss any struggle with sin because it takes a little bit of energy. It takes humility. It takes a lot of self-reflection. And, and those things just tend not to be what we desire to be. But the truth is, through relationships with one another, especially through the Word of God, as we uphold it to ourselves and we do that self-reflection, it helps us to be sanctified more fully. So we need to look at those things, those matters of sin, um, and, and so that we can guard and guide um, our relationship, relationships with one another and with the Lord. Fourth, we're going to learn about the importance of the coming of Jesus, both the first coming and the second coming. That re- revolves around uh, John the Baptist as well as Jesus himself in the incarnation, and then also the great day of the Lord is that prophetic verse that looks at the end times. Uh, number five, we will be encouraged about the value of faithful stewardship, that we won't rob God and fail to bring the tithes into the storehouse, but we're going to talk about what faithful stewardship looks like. That's important for us in a mark uh, or measure of our maturity. Remember, we are to be people that have hearts to do what? Steward God's resources, okay? That we have hearts that is out of logo, remember that? We'll be worshipers of God. We'll be people dependent on prayer. We'll have hearts, uh, minds for the truth. We'll have hearts to steward God, God's resources. We'll have hands to serve. And we'll have feet to go. So those six components remind us of what uh, maturity in uh, Christ looks like. So having hearts to steward His resources and having hands to serve are important parts of this that come out of Malachi right here. And then number six. We will simply do this. We'll be more versed in how the Old Testament and New Testament relate in revealing God's redemptive plan. And especially I think about chapter, I mean, chapter 1, verse 2, that whole concept of Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. That's a Genesis passage as well as a passage in Romans. There's an aspect to that thread that runs the, throughout the course of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. We need to understand how those two pictures of the covenant the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Remember, that's what Testament really means, how they relate, and we can build into our Bible study and habits and understanding of God's consistent work through covenants well. Because if we don't get that, then what it leaves is gaps. So so I think this is why the Lord impressed me to say this one passage alone really connects the Old and New Testaments well, early Scripture as well as a little bit later in Romans, because Romans was one of those kind of mid time books written by Paul. So, those would be the six reasons. Now, what does that mean for us practically today? Well, I, I want to um, encourage you with this. Number one, read the book. Read the book. Because as you read through it, you're going to become more and more comfortable with it. How many of you ever like studied through Malachi before? Okay, one or two of us. Okay, but not many. We need to become better at that, okay? Being, being tuned into the whole of Scripture. So this is one of those places I'm really excited about. 
Um, I'm going to tell you, I've got a minute more, so I'm going to tell you something. Um, when, when I remember, if you, if you don't know my story, I'll give you a quick synopsis. I thought I was going to be a lifetime youth pastor. I, I never had like personal aspirations to, to be called into pastoral ministry outside of youth ministry. But pastors around me, and then the Lord finally convinced me, they saw what the Lord was doing in me. That's one of the ways the Lord has consistently worked in my life is I start wrestling with something, and then as I'm wrestling with it, I get an affirmation from someone, and it's just part of his pattern. And so as I was dealing with those things internally, the Lord continued to use men in my life and said, yes, here you are. So I thought I was going to be a lifetime youth pastor. And then when the Lord worked through some circumstances, and then I responded to the call to be a full-time uh, our, our pastor, pastoral ministry and, and leadership, um, I started thinking, okay, I'm this age, I've got this many messages across Sunday mornings until I would be, quote, retirement age to, to preach on the entirety of Scripture. So I did some quick math, okay? And over the 66 books of Scripture, I'd had like 13 messages per book. And I honestly, I went, that's depressing. <laughs> because it's like, if I'm to be responsible for teaching and covering all of the, the, the scriptures, which I think is, is a, not just a noble or you know, high responsibility, I think it's, it should be that. Um, that that's too few. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you cover, like we've, we've taught on Matthew, we've taught on Romans, we've gone through Hebrews. There's more chapters than I can cover in, in 13 weeks in any of those. So I think we spent almost a year on Matthew, not, not all together, it was broken up, but you know, that, that's amazing. So for the Lord to impress us to go through Malachi, and it'll probably be in somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 messages or so out of this book and on this series. If We should be exhausting, one, this book, but two, relating it well to other passages in Scripture and such so that it becomes more than just standing in its own, like, um, kind of spot, but, but we see how it really ties in. And so I want to cover it well for us, that we might fall more in love with God's Word, that we might be responsive to it and understand, because I do think this is one of those books that, not, not as any better than any other, other ones doing this, but I really do see how it ties in Old and New Testament well and points to Christ and the person of the Lord and, and these truths that we need to, to experience and understand. So, for you, read the book. Read the book. Get to know it well. And, and the more you understand and begin to, to read through it, the more when you come in here on Sunday mornings, I think you'll find strength and, and uh, it, it'll impact you a little bit differently because you've been soaking in those truths that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us together corporately as a church in this season. Now, um, Mason, I need to talk to you after the service. You're not in trouble, okay? I'm the one that's in trouble, okay? Um, that's reassuring. Um, so make sure you see me. I also want to do this. Um, I, I want to take a minute um, to ask you guys this. Mason asked me a question this morning when he came in. Has, have you guys been paying attention to what's going on at Asbury College? How, how many of you know what's going on at Asbury? Okay, that's, that's a lot of y'all. That's good. Um, I, I want to address this pastorally from my perspective for just a moment. Okay? Number one, and, and you will understand this about me because I've, I've even confessed this. I think pastors have some responsibility to be a little bit skeptical and cynical about things because we have a responsibility to weigh those things well against the Word, OK? 
okay? And so, but at the same time, the tendency could be to get in the flesh and being skeptical or cynical and being be dismissive. So I want to, to give you a couple pieces of my own reflection, and I didn't go up to Asbury this week or Wilmore, Kentucky, okay? I, I didn't take time to that to do that. I can't. Um, but I did pay attention to some friends or acquaintances that have been up there. And I'm going to be honest about this. I feel like there's some mixed uh, testimonies, like responses about what's happening up there. And until I saw one that was a classmate of mine at Bryan uh, that came across Facebook yesterday, I was probably more reserved in my assessment about what the Lord's doing at Asbury. So my friend actually shared this. He, he shared that there's scripture being read, that there's prayer and there's worship and repentance. That was one of the first testimonies that I really heard about scripture being read. Uh, he spent three hours on campus, uh, I guess that was probably Wednesday or Thursday, uh, when I read his report, maybe it was Friday. But anyhow, um, that was encouraging to me. That took some of my skepticism and cynicism and, and like lowered my inhibitions about what the Lord's doing. Because revival has, is, in my estimation, biblically, the Holy Spirit certainly can move, but He moves how? Through the Word. Okay, through the Word. And so certainly that ought to produce worship. It ought to produce prayer. It ought to produce repentance. But if those things are existing apart from the balance of Scripture, that's concerning to me. I want to add a caveat, and this is personal, okay? My own personal assessment as, as I've reflected on this. This is largely happening on a college campus. I don't fault that or, or think that that's impossible in any way, okay? I, I've, as a matter of fact, uh, I love college students. I think that college students are some of the best age group people to be ministering with and to because they're thinking well for the most part. They also have a lot of energy, and they tend to be teachable because they're at a stage in their life where they're being taught, okay? So I think a lot of times we get past college and we think, oh, I've been there, done that, got my degree, and we don't really approach being teachable any longer, and we kind of get set in our ways. And certainly the older I get, the more I know that about myself, okay? Thank you for not echoing how old I am and rejoicing or amening that I'm old. Um, but here's my point. I think that certainly the Lord could be moving and probably is moving in a lot of ways on that campus. I think it's, it is likely trickling out to some of their areas. Here's where we're going to know what that movement or, or how that movement really is of the Lord. It's going to impact the church. It's not just going to impact college students on a college campus in a college chapel. Christ is the head of the church. Local churches are always an expression of what the Lord is doing universally. So I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be overly cautious or skeptical or anything like that, but I'm being measured. I hope you hear that. That when these students begin to leave Asbury or these people that are going for short moments are, are getting something around what the Lord is doing, churches will see the fruit of that. And I want to emphasize this, folks. We're, we're praying for these same kind of things in our church. That's why we gave 
out the 40 days of prayer focus, that we as a church would be revitalized, that we would see a move of God within our body, within ourselves, that, that when we pray and reach out to folks, folks would begin to come to Christ and we'd see the fruit of that. Not for the sake of the Grove Kingdom. Surely, yeah, certainly we want rewards from that. But the greater purpose is God's kingdom, that churches would be impacted. I honestly don't care if you share your faith with someone and they come to Christ and they get plugged into another church. That's okay. That's okay. Would we love them to be here at the Grove because you influenced them and and were able to share your faith with them and that was one of the final pieces to them coming to Christ? Absolutely. But, But what if that's your friend that lives in California, you're doing that over phone or FaceTime? Well, they can't come to the Grove Church. That's impractical, okay? And I don't think it's practical for them to go, well, I'm going to get all my food from the Grove Church and listen to the podcast. That's not healthy community, okay? So uh, hear me. Local church is essential. God ordained the local church and the leadership and the members together to work for his kingdom's glory. And if we not, are not operating according to local church, something's missing. So I'm not saying that Totally the jury's out. But I'm hopeful and praying that local churches will see the benefit of what's happening through what's going on at Asbury or other schools that are being impacted by that. We'll know the legitimacy of that. Is that that a fair, healthy assessment? I I hope some of y'all are like, yeah, man, that's right, okay? That may be new for some of you, but I don't apologize for that. Because, again, I can prove biblically all of those details about the uh, assessment and appropriation of, of leadership within a church, about how we're instructed to, to honor those who lead us, that we anoint those who lead us by laying on hands and evaluating them, that we give to the local church. All of those things are essential. So, so we'll know the fruit of this not just from the couple weeks that this has been going on on that campus and how it's trickling out, but what happens in our churches. And truthfully, I hope it it impacts us in some way. I don't know what that will look like, but I want us to be willing to set our agendas aside for the movement of God in our lives. Is that reasonable? Okay. And I don't want to predict what that looks like, but I know this, the Word of God will be present, there will be people repenting, there will be worship, because we'll, I think those elements are there in what's going on, but it's got to occur in the church too, okay? Any other thoughts, questions, comments about any of that? So where does that leave us? I would say, number one, this, pray. Pray, that's why I think it's, it's, it's no coincidence absolutely providential that God has called us as a church to be focused on prayer this year. I think that there's other churches that I know that have been doing that same kind of thing, focusing on prayer in their church life. I think that there's certainly an aspect to Asbury and what's going on there and these other campuses where people are praying. We need to pray that that the Lord would clearly reveal himself in this and pray for us to be responsive to what the Lord wants to do in our own life here. And how that occurs, I'm not going to predict. We don't need to predict, but we'll make sure the elements are right. Okay? That, that a good call? And I think that comes out again. <laughs> this whole thing with Malachi. 
there is something about the day of the Lord. When the Lord shows up, there's been moments like this, and they're good moments. We, we see it sprinkled all throughout Acts. Okay? There's spectacular moments where the Lord moves. We don't need to control those things. We need to pray for them and be open to the Lord's movement through the Word. That comes about in every aspect of what the Lord says to us in Scripture. And it will be repentance, it will be obedience, it will be called to holiness and those kind of things. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want us to just stop for a minute and pray. Pray silently where you are. And I, I want to ask you to do it in this two ways. Okay? First, pray for your own attention to the Lord. Because if I'm thinking through what Malachi says, it is that where are we missing that? Like, like the people in Israel at that point, especially Judah, where were they growing callous to the Lord and rebelling? Every one of us has that propensity, or that tendency or possibility. Where is it that the Lord might reveal to you that you may be callous? Let, let's be honest about that with him this morning. And then second, I want you to do this. Pray for this movement that has begun in our nation, that it would be clearly of the Lord, and that the Lord would work how he so desires in the local churches in the end of that. I think that's a, a great way for us to pray for these students, for the leadership, for those that are being attracted to this. It will be of the Lord in the local church. Okay? So, after I give you all two minutes to do those things, I'll close this in prayer. Okay? Let me just help us open. Lord, we come before you. We humble ourselves, and Lord, as I think about the fact that all of us are going to be lifting our thoughts to you in prayer for just a moment, we're thankful that you're a God who is not limited by thousands and millions of thoughts rising to you as incense rises. But those, these prayers that we're to pray, Lord, they are that, they're an aroma pleasant to you. And so, Lord, as we pray, let us do what I've asked. Let us reflect on our own possibility and potential of, of being callous. Lord, Lord, help us to be open to your spirit leading us and convicting us through the word that this, just the little bit that's been shared this morning. Then also, Lord, as we lift up these students, the leadership, and then the churches and communities that, that ought to be impacted by a genuine move of, of you, let us be ready to, to embrace and receive and then also measure well if these things are not of you. So Father, I want to be quiet. Let us, let us do business with you now for just a couple minutes. Heavenly Father, you are a great and mighty God, worthy of our worship. And all throughout the book of Malachi, we're going to see how there is to be a holy fear that you call your people to. Lord, I think we live in an age, and I think this is part of what I appreciate about what's happening in Asbury and Wilmore, Kentucky, is that there, there's a, a focus on your holiness. Lord, every time I've turned in uh, or tuned into the, the video stream, the worship there is, is certainly elevating your person, your character, your nature. And Lord, I think we live in a world 
especially our nation, we've grown callous to who you are. We're not fearful of a holy God. Lord, let us repent of that. Lord, Malachi says this. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Lord, that is hope. That is joy. That is strength. And it all centers around our fear of you knowing who you are and responding rightly to you. And yes, certainly there's a blessing to that, but Lord, it is about our relationship with you. And it means because when we rightly fear, we, dis- we have a, a deep distaste for sin. We have a desire for you. Lord, I pray that, that we would be a people that embrace that kind of value, that kind of heart for you. And it, and it may require some deep self-reflection and repentance. Lord, let us not be afraid to be convicted. And, and to do that when we are convicted to repent and to, to return to you. Lord, the promise is, is to enjoy your fellowship and, and a better fellowship with one another. And that's what we long for. So, Father, I, I pray that what you're doing, even in our midst, it may not be what it looks like at Asbury, but Lord, I still sense that you're doing something great with our body. Lord, let us be attentive to you, attentive to your word. Let there be an unwillingness for us to neglect anything about you. Instead, Lord, fill us with a zeal for you zeal for you above everything else. And as we are filled with that, Lord, let us speak boldly, live courageously, encourage and encourage one another towards that same end. Because that's, that's what we're instructed to do. I think about Hebrews 10, 24, that we're to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So Lord, that's our commitment this morning. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to thank you for being here at the Grove Church to worship today. Uh, I want to encourage you, especially we're not trying to rush you out by any means. Please hang around, fellowship. Uh, this, this Wednesday night, don't forget, we're going to be resuming our uh, teaching on how to study and read the Bible well. Uh, the workshop this last week was really, really much better, so it's going to continue in that vein. And so if you kind of, if you were here the first couple weeks and felt like, I oh, mean, I'm kind of struggling, we understand that. Gene and I understand that. We, we feel like the rest of the, the way is going to go better, um, and it's going to be beneficial to you. Uh, also, I would remind you this, following spring break, we're going to be looking at two more weeks of how to teach the Bible well. So we're going to take these things and work a little bit more strategically uh, so if you at all have any desire to teach, uh, whether a small group, maybe it's a, even children's or youth ministry, or maybe it's a Bible study through your, at your workplace, it doesn't matter. We just want to help you improve uh, and, and understand how to teach the Bible well. So uh, with all that, I think 
The only other thing I would say is Michael uh, and I were meeting with the deacons today uh, right after church, so please, uh, we just cover your prayers for that. No, there's nothing negative. We're just doing our routine meeting and trying to work through the things that the Lord has in store for us this year. So have a blessed Sunday afternoon. Remember to connect in community and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Have a good, good afternoon.